Welcome to Software Security Chat Chat, episode 106 for April the 9th, 2013. I'm Chester Wisniewski, and my guest again this week is Paul Ducklin. Welcome back, Paul. Thanks, Chester. No weather mentions again, except to say that winter is beginning to set in in the Southern Hemisphere, but you didn't hear it from me. <laughs> well, and I'd like to point out, we appreciate all the listener feedback when we do receive it, so feel free to leave us some comments on the uh, blog post on Naked Security if after you've listened to the episode, if you have any feedback. And if you want us to drill into something that specifically deals with one issue, then we'd love to do it in a techno, which is our other podcast stream. We haven't done one for a while, have we? No, it's been it's been a few months. It's probably time to uh, to do another one. I think, you know, we were on pace for like three or four a year. I think that's pretty good. Um, we're, this week, we're just going to stick back to the news as we do on the chat chat. And uh, it begins with a story about the U.S. Department of Defense having a little bit of a struggle with the... Uh, Bring Your Own Device program. Um, maybe it's a bit strong to even call it a Bring Your Own Device program when you have uh, 14,000 mobile devices that you're not managing. That's kind of scary. I mean, you know, we've heard about things in the past with leaks that have had pretty large international impact. Uh, certainly the uh, alleged information that was um, purloined by Bradley Manning and others, you kind of expect the DOD to have a more comprehensive grip on what's going on. Yes, Chester. It sort of made me smile to think that, gosh, if the Army and the Air Force and the Navy can't force their chaps to do the right thing, then what chance do small and medium businesses have? I think the problem is that it's one of those damned-if-you-do, damned-if-you-don't situations. You can't really stop your staff from having mobile phones and mobile devices. So you can either say, look, you can't use them at work or you can't use them for work, in which case people will use them anyway even though they're not connected to the work network, or you try and meet people halfway. Uh, unfortunately, it seems with the DoD that halfway wasn't 50% of the journey done. Yeah, I think that the challenge um, also that's not clear in this story is that whether all these devices were necessarily being used as uh, you know email clients and things on official DoD networks, or whether it's simply an issue of I can plug in this device and it shows up as a mass storage device where I could either accidentally or intentionally put uh, sensitive information that really shouldn't probably be on my mobile phone. Yes, and it's important to remember that the way that a device presents itself when you plug it into the network is generally the choice of the owner of the device. For example, I have a credit card size camera and I get to choose when I plug it in, do I want it to pretend to be a removable drive and just show up as the e-drive or something, or do I want it to do uh, PTP? you know, the camera transfer protocol. It does mean that there's an awful lot of power in the hands of the person who owns the device. Yeah, it's a, it's a certainly more complicated than it appears on the surface, but I guess as a lesson, it's a good reminder to go back and say, okay, do you have a policy about mobile devices in your network, and are you inviting them onto the network, or are you trying to prohibit them? And whichever you're doing, don't forget that everyone's going to have one anyway, so you need to figure out what the most sensible policy is to deal with the uh, the situation in your organization. Yes, and you need to ask yourself, you know, what am I expecting to be able to do if slash when it gets lost? And when I've talked to people about using their own device in the work environment, sometimes you'll hear people say, oh, but I'm not giving the IT department the right to wipe my device at will. And, you know, actually you can sort of meet halfway, because if if you have a decent mobile control product, Uh, you can actually set things up so that either the IT guy can wipe it because he knows that if you've lost it, then 
there's corporate data on it and it's important to wipe it. Or you can jump in on a self-help portal and wipe it because you know that some of your personal life is on there as well. And I think once people realise actually that there's, there's something in it for both sides, for both parties, then meeting in the middle is actually a great way to have your cake and eat it. Well, and while we're talking about reminders to review things, uh, there's been some emails going around purporting to be from Hewlett Packard ScanJet devices, which is their network-enabled scanners that uh, are very popular in the workplace. And these emails, of course, uh, are asking you to open up a poison attachment. And you kind of hope that we all are smart enough not to open poison attachments in 2013. Actually, the latest attack that we just wrote about on Naked Security Chester has gone one step further. It's click here to retrieve. So people who are sceptical of attachments, as they should be, might feel a little more comfortable to click on a link. And the problem is that with the increase in cloud-based services of this sort, hey, we can do scanning, remote printing, remote file sharing, uh, the problem is that it's not that rare anymore for you to receive what looks like an internal document that has an external link. Most organizations, small, medium, and large, probably have an HP printer in there somewhere. So it's actually not that rare to get this sort of thing saying, hey, somebody scanned something and sent you a document. You sort of have to be a little bit forgiving of people who might fall for this one. Yeah, and it's just a reminder that if you're not expecting something, don't let curiosity get the best of you. And we, we, we certainly have seen that with attachments and all kinds of other things, you know, used in email phishing attacks in the past. and. This is just another reminder that just because uh, it, it feels familiar, it sounds like something you see frequently, again, if it's unexpected, hmm, maybe, uh, maybe you shouldn't click that link. It's almost a watering hole attack, isn't it? That's the sort of modern fanciful name for it. It's where you go and you do something that seems very specific to somebody, but doesn't have to be that specific. It just has to match something that they are perhaps not expecting, but they're used to or that they're perhaps not expecting but they're interested in, that doesn't seem completely out of the ordinary. Yeah, sort of uh, exploiting the creatures of habit vulnerability. Yes. You know, if you've received 20 of the this sort of email saying, oh, I've got a scan, I've got a printout, I've got this thing sent, I've got that in Dropbox, I've got this here, I've got that there, you might get 20 or 30 of those over a course of a 12-month period that you click on, and they're all documents that subsequent to you opening them you found that you were interested in them and how would you know before you looked and absolutely no harm was done so it's really easy to get into that habit that hey if i do it the 31st time or the 101st time then i should be good by the law of averages and of course the crooks know how to exploit that because they only have to succeed once well, I've got some good news, uh, and, and it's, a, it's a trend that uh, I'd like to see a company that we do business with is, is adopting uh, wholeheartedly, which is uh, WordPress. Uh, you know, the guys at Automatic that do WordPress.com and WordPress VIP, where we host Naked Security, are now offering uh, two-factor to everyone, and even in multiple flavors, right? You can get it via SMS, or you can get it via an app on your smartphone. I just like the idea that we see so many blogs hacked and poor passwords and, and a lot of people uh, create accounts or don't even, you know, you know, to create comments and all these types of things on blogs and they go, ah, oh, I'll use my throwaway password. And then it turns out, you know, somebody gets compromised and all these types of things. So I think it's really great to see more mainstream apps like WordPress offering two-factor. I know you've been playing with it, Paul. It's been working pretty well. Yes, I just liked the idea. I've been waiting for it for a bit. I'm glad they did it. Apple, of course, 
did something similar recently, but they only made it available in a few countries in the world. From what I can see, the WordPress.com two-step authentication, I'm just going to call it 2FA, two-factor authentication, uh, the SMS-based one is available in every country in the world, from Albania to Zimbabwe or where, whatever it is at the beginning and the end these days. And to be honest, the SMSs reach my phone before the little dialogue pops up, allowing me to enter it. You know, it's been something that I just turned on and, in my opinion, does greatly strengthen my login. And the important thing about two-factor authentication is not so much what the companies that try and sell you authentication devices will tell you. What is it? Something you know and something you have. The point is that there's a stage in there which is a password that is delivered via a separate mechanism to your primary login computer and is different every time. And I was just amazed at how little it interfered with me logging in. It has added about two seconds to every time I log in, and most of that is actually entering the code to unlock my phone, which means even if someone steals my phone and my laptop, they still won't be able to get out the magic codes. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, well, as a Canadian, uh, I often am in areas of the country that don't have spectacular mobile phone coverage because it's a rather large country with a very sparse population once you leave the U.S. borderlands. So uh, I was happy to see they support Google Authenticator, which is fantastic because many times I have access to the internet via Wi-Fi, but I don't necessarily have uh, access to SMS messages. So depending how you prefer to engage with it, it's available for you either way, which is, I think, pretty good. So I think the message is for users of services that are beginning to offer 2FA, don't just feel that it's a hassle that you can't live with. And for people who are operating services, don't rest on the excuse that, oh, my users, my customers aren't going to like it. It's actually really good for everybody. It's good for the user and it's good for the provider of the service. Absolutely. And speaking of kind of service providers, it appears that there's, um, I don't want to call it browser wars, but it, 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 it does harken back to the 1990s. Suddenly, everybody's announcing new directions for the, I guess you call the rendering engines uh, of browsers. You know, historically, Chrome and Safari and then recently Opera have all said they were using uh, WebKit. Uh, and then there, of course, was Mozilla with uh, their Gecko engine, and uh, and Microsoft uh, has their own uh, flavor of stuff as well. And now they're all going a new direction. So what's the deal? Well, Google have had this project called Blink for a bit, which they've now said this is the future. We're forking WebKit, and not to be outdone on exactly the same day. It was a third of April, I believe. Uh, Mozilla said, "Hey, we've got a new rendering engine too called Servo." The reason this feels like the right sort of browser wars to me, and why I got interested enough to write it up on Naked Security, is it finally sounds like the war that the browser vendors are having is a war against the bad guys. It's not a war against each other. And both Google and Mozilla, in their, well, they're not press releases, they're actually written by senior techies in the organizations. The story they're telling about these is that the primary reason is not featureitis, it is in fact security. And I think diversity also makes us maybe a little safer. We're, we're not running one, you know, monochrome thing that once you find a vulnerability, everybody is a victim uh, by having a choice in the market. Monochrome, was that a pun, Chester? <laughs> maybe a little. Yes, I, the term I've heard for that is hybrid vigor, and that makes things harder for the crooks. 
So let's hope that the standards basis behind these new browser projects doesn't make things more difficult for web developers, because I have read online some web developers going, oh no, two more rendering engines that aren't quite the same as all the others. We'll have an if-then-else, 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 if-then-else. And that's what needs to get shaken out if we want things to be more secure. Let's hope that this has a good effect on performance and security. That would be a great double whammy to have. Because most of the time people complain that, oh, well, security removes performance and makes things worse, and that's why I don't like it. It doesn't have to be that way. So let's hope that's what this brings to the online ecosystem. Well, absolutely. And I mean, the the reality is we've learned a lot and a lot of different things around sandboxing and work between Adobe and Google and others on trying to figure out, you know, how do we isolate these web processes to create a more secure browser? Now that that's been going on for a couple of years, both Mozilla and Google and everybody else can now take that that lesson and, and kind of, you know, rebuild with that in mind so we can uh, build better mitigations, too. I mean, this isn't just about not having bugs. It's about mitigating mistakes. We know we're going to make mistakes. So let's build technologies that are more tolerant of the errors we build into our software. And Google, bless their hearts, are pressing this really hard in their project. And my understanding is this is at least part of what was behind forking off Blink from WebKit is the idea that as much as possible should be a separate process. By having separate processes, actually setting up and communicating between them is more expensive. It takes longer. It makes things a little bit slower. But it does mean that you can actually manage the different parts of what your browser is doing separately. And my understanding is Google's long-term goal is that if you have a web page which consists of multiple iframes, inline frames, each iframe will actually be rendered in a separate process, which means if you are sucking in third-party content from some dodgy site, uh, and that dodgy site has set some bad stuff inside its own little part of the browser window, then that can be killed off independently of anything else. And that divide-and-conquer approach, in my opinion, is exactly what the browser world doesn't have and really needs. Well, and as a final parting thought on that, we're also starting to see the benefits uh, of moving to 64-bit. Uh, you know, I've talked to a lot of admins and they go, ah, you know, we're still buying four gig laptops. We don't really care. We're still, you know, we'll, we'll use 32-bit here, 32-bit there, because it doesn't really matter. We only need that for big memory. There's a lot more to that. I mean, if we start looking at some of the research Google's done and, and, and talking about as well are things like, um, you know, being able to take advantage of ASLR and having a more unpredictable, you know, memory address space by having 64-bit is a big advantage to security. And you also get benefits where you don't pay as much overhead penalty uh, on 64-bit kernels for things like position-independent executables that allow things like ASLR to actually work. So we're seeing security payoffs from these new architectures in addition to just being able to have gobs of RAM and a few new instructions. So there, there's um, it's bright times ahead. It's not always doom and gloom here on the chat chat. And that concludes episode 106. Uh, thanks for joining me again, Paul. A great pleasure, Chester. And I'm glad that we got so much good news into the podcast. Uh, and I'm very glad that you steered our discussion in that direction. Thanks, Paul. And uh, as always, for the latest security news, you can always get the latest uh, at nakedsecurity.softless.com. And for the podcasts, you can go to podcasts.softless.com or subscribe to our RSS feed, or you can search for us on iTunes. And until next time, stay secure.